You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Amen. I'd like you to open up to the, uh, the book of First Peter. We're going to continue this morning in our study of this letter, first letter of Peter. And last week we began looking at the first half of chapter 4. And the theme of the first half of chapter 4 is how to live for God. For the re- Peter says, for the rest of your time on planet Earth, how to live for God, how to live for God and to finish strong. Peter says, if you're going to live for God, if you're going to finish strong, if you're not going to fall back or fall away or abandon the faith or water down the faith, how do you not do those things and finish strong? Peter says, one of the first things you have to realize is that if you're going to faithfully follow Jesus Christ, there is going to be some suffering in your life because of your loyalty, because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's just unavoidable. All those, Paul writes, who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer some form of persecution. If you are committed to following the ways and the will of God in a world that has completely different and diametrically opposed ways and will, there's going to be a collision there. And that collision will involve some level of suffering. But you have to realize that. If you don't think that, if you're not prepared for that, you may be very disappointed at a certain point and say to God, why are you letting this go on in my life? The reason is, is because you are the Lord's and you're following him and his way. And when you're following him, you want to follow him for a long time. This isn't just kind of some kind of quick thing and then we're done. No, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And in a marathon, you have to, be, you have to hold steady, you have to persevere. And what you'll find is during this marathon, Satan's going to come along and try to trip you up. And that's the second thing. You've got to resist falling back into sinful patterns of the past. And I see this happening more and more in our days. There, there is less and less of a difference between a believer in Jesus Christ and a non-believer. All the polls say that. It's like things that we considered inappropriate 10 years ago are now appropriate. I just heard a guy the other day, very famous preacher, you would know his name. He, he, right in front of a large crowd of people, he called his wife the sexiest grandmother is who twerks for the Lord. Now this guy's He's famous. Very, you would know his name right away. Well, what causes someone to say something like that? Now, I guarantee you 10 years ago, you'd never say something like that. But the world is slowly creeping in into, into Christianity. It's affecting believers. It's affecting the way believers talk, the verbiage that they use, the things that they watch. And what happens is, You know, eventually that stuff kind of starts eroding somebody and ruining their testimony and taking away their self-confidence, and it leads to self-deception. And that's all part of Satan's plan because we're going along fine, right? Everything's going good. We're strong. We're steady. We're doing the Lord's will. Then all of a sudden, I don't know what it is, but four or five years ago, it's like all of a sudden, believers started acting like unbelievers. That's Satan. Don't fall for his trap. Don't fall for it. Don't go back into those old patterns of the past. No, don't do that. It's not going to lead to a good road. And you know what? It's not Christian liberty. I'm not being legalistic here. It's following the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your strength. And you've got to remember that your decision to do that, ultimately, you're going to be happy about it. You won't have missed out on anything. One day you'll turn back, I'm glad I took that narrow road. I'm glad I was veering and I got back up on that road. Why? Because there is a day coming when God's going to make every wrong right. There is a day of justice coming. That's the third thing. There's a day of justice and a day of vindication, a day where you will turn around and look at your life and you're going to say, I'm glad I did it God's way. It was worth it all. A day of vindication. That day is coming. We saw that last week. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to start right there and pick up where we left off last week. The theme is still the same, how to live for God, how to finish strong. But in these verses we're going to look at this morning, verses 7 through 11, the the instruction that, that Peter's giving here turns from individual believers staying strong to the corporate body staying strong. The way we should relate to one another so we can really live for God and spur one another on to live for God and finish strong. So it starts in verse 7. Let's read it together. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. 
Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory, the glory and the power forever and ever. Okay, so this section starts off with kind of an ominous phrase, if you will, when you, the end of all things is near. And I'm sure a few of you might have had maybe a mental image when I read that, you know, of that creepy guy standing on the street corner with a sign sometimes draped over him announcing the end of the world. It's here. The end is near. Again, it's kind of ominous. The end is coming. Now, the guy on the street corner is right. It is. But that's not quite the angle that Peter has in mind when he says the end of all things is near. The end for believers is not doom and gloom. They're rather something to look forward to because finally, 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 our time in exile will be over and we get to go home. That's not doom and gloom. And when we get there, our faithfulness will be rewarded by the one and only person that really matters, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll be at home with him forever and ever. With all that have believed, I mean, what a day that's going to be. It's sobering, yes, because of its finality, but it's also comforting. And the anticipation of that day is one of the, in fact, it might be the second greatest motivation in all the scriptures, the grace of God being number one. But this motivation of, of this ultimate day of reckoning, of the oncoming of Jesus Christ's returning, of gathering with all the believers, the Lord's return, is found over and over and over throughout the Bible as a chief motivation to live for God and finish well. We, it's in every chapter. Peter mentions it at least once in every chapter of the five chapters of this letter. He talks about the Lord's coming as a motivation. And, and that's just First Peter. I mean, the same emphasis is seen, you know, throughout the rest uh, of the New Testament. Notice the, the scriptures I'm going to read just here. I'm going to read you about four. And notice the, the, the statement, the Lord is coming or the Lord's coming is near. And then what it motivates in the same passage. Here's Romans 13, the Apostle Paul. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So what should that motivate us to do? Put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Right? Here's James. Be patient and stand firm. Why? What's the motivation for that? What's the motivation for patience and standing firm? The Lord's coming is near. That word patience could also be translated endurance. Endure. Stand firm. Because why? The Lord's coming is near. And then there's Hebrews 10. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more what? As you see the day approaching. So there is this motivation of the approaching day of the Lord that should cause us to encourage other people, to encourage fellow believers to not give up meeting together, to spur them on to love and good deeds. And then Philippians 4, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. So even something like this fruit of the Spirit called gentleness is motivated by this idea, this understanding that the Lord will return. Now, when Peter says the end of all things is near, he's not referring so much to the passing of clock time or chronological time or chronological days as he is uh, referring to the unfolding of God's story. Chapter 1 begins, of course, with creation followed by a rebellion. And then another rebellion followed by a flood. And then another rebellion followed by the scattering of people and the confusing of languages. That's all chapter one. And then there's chapter two. That's the story of redemption as it continues through the calling of Abraham to form a nation, the Abrahamic covenant. 
Succeeding chapters reveal this formation of the nation of Israel. It's exodus out of Egyptian slavery. And then later, it's exile in Babylon and then returning to the rebuilding of the, of the homeland of Jerusalem. And then in the second to last chapter, I'm skipping over a bunch, is of God's story of redemption is what? It's the incarnation of the Son of God. The second to last chapter. There's only one more chapter left. The second to last chapter is the incarnation, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Peter writes earlier, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So the last times are what? When Christ is revealed, when Christ came. Peter's simply saying that we should live in a way that reflects the fact that we are living in the last chapter. The end of all things is near. So therefore, be alert and of sober mind. That's the first thing. Be alert and sober, he says, so that you may pray. Now those two terms, um, alert and sober-minded or sober so you can pray, um, they're basically, in, in the Greek language, they're almost synonymous. They, they're very similar to one another. and They're designed to remind us that of the importance of having spiritual and moral clarity. I gave you some examples earlier of the lack of that. Of having spiritual and moral clarity through the understanding of God's Word. The more you grow in God's Word, the more you grow in your understanding and application, there is a spiritual and moral clarity that becomes more present within your life. And this clarity from the Word helps you avoid two extremes that are very common in the last days. And those two extremes are, number one, being unaware of the times in which we live, and, and number two, being anxious about the times that we live. You know, some believers are just unaware. They don't see it. Sometimes because of, you know, they're filling their life up with a worldly point of view on the events in the world. They're not listening to anybody biblical or godly. So all their opinions are formed from people who are not believers, and that's their worldview. And they look out the world, and they don't see anything. I mean, they see a couple things wrong, but they don't see what's behind it. They don't see it. And, and sometimes it's just because, you know, natural things are drowning out uh, uh, spiritual things. You know, they're so caught up in living my life, living this life. Their vision's impaired. They don't see it. Now, look, God calls us to enjoy life. Don't get me wrong. Right up to the last day. God has given us richly all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And while we should enjoy this gracious gift of life and the blessings, we should never let temporal things drown out our spiritual sensitivity and the seriousness that's really what's on the line for us in this life and for others that God wants us to reach. We should not aimlessly, you know, just live our lives or, or, or spiritually be insensitive to what's going on. And around us. You know, Jesus, he rebuked the Pharisees for that. Here's the religious leaders of the day, and they were just totally ignorant to what was going on in reality. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky as to the weather, and yet you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, you're spiritually insensitive. You can't see it. You don't get it. The biggest event of God's redemptive plan is standing right in front of you and you can't see it. These are the guys that had all the knowledge of the Scripture, but they had no idea. They couldn't see spiritual reality. You're not alert. You're not sober. You're not sober-minded. You're unaware. Now, on the other hand, you know, some people are oblivious. Then there's other believers. They see it. They see it clearly. But they worry about it. They're anxious about it. They fret about it. They fight that worry. You know, spiritual alertness and sober-mindedness flows out of a solid understanding of God's Word. A solid understanding of God, the nature of God, the character of God, the promises of God revealed in the Word. And that revelation does not produce anxiety. It does not produce turmoil. It does not produce worry. It produces peace. It produces rest. 
And the reason you have rest and peace and confidence is you understand God's redemptive story. You know that you're living in the last chapter of the book and God's already finished the book. You know what's going to happen. We know what the end is. Rest in that. He's the author, Ephesians 1.11, who works out everything in the conformity to His will or to the conformity with the purpose of His will. He's working it out. Rest in that. Know that. He'll take care of you. He's bigger than anything that's going on in this world. You know, we kind of freak out sometimes when we see stuff, but you've got to realize, yes, this stuff is caused by some evil people, but above all of that, there is Satan and his principalities and powers directing that, but above all that, who's there? Sovereign God, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, I don't know how he does that. I understand all the inner workings work. I just know this. He's on the throne forevermore. I'm okay. I'm his child. We're one day going to be with him. We've got some work to do. Let's get it done. Let's stop, you know... Pay attention to what's going on around us. Yes, I'm not saying just put your head in the sand. No, don't do that. But don't freak out. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind. Now, the word sober-minded, of course, is self-explanatory. The word alert um, requires a little bit more. In the Greek, it's sophroneo, which means clear-minded. I don't know why the NIV translates this alert. The NIV 84 got it right. It was clear-minded. And I think it's a way better translation. And you're going to see why in just a second here. Be clear-minded and be sober-minded. Clear-minded. Now, this word that's clear-minded, sophroneo, was used over in Mark chapter 5 in the story of the demoniac. Remember the guy that had all these demons in him? They eventually were sending some pigs who run off the side of the cliff, Right? the demoniac of the Gadarenes. And, uh, and Jesus delivers this guy from these demons, and it says he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Sophroneo. He was clear-minded. He was sane. That's what the word means. And so here's what Peter's saying here. He's saying if you're not living as if the end is near, you're not living in reality. You're not living in reality. You're not living in the real. The reality is an end is coming. The world says if you live as if the end is near, you're crazy. This text says if you don't live as the end is near, you're crazy. Do you see that? Well, why is that? Why are you crazy if you don't live as if there is an end coming, that there is a reckoning day coming? Well, if there is a God, okay, Speaking in general terms here, if there is a God, he has moral absolutes. And if he has moral absolutes, there's going to be a reckoning day. And if that reckoning day is coming and I live as if there's not a reckoning day, I'm nuts. I'm divorced from reality. I'm crazy. Now, I may be a very smart person. I have all kinds of knowledge. I can manage my own life, you know, very well. But if I'm not living with that reality, there is a sense that I'm not living in the ultimate reality of what's going to happen, what's going to come. So Peter says, be alert, be clear-minded. And he says, do this though, not just for that sake, but do it for a reason, do it for a purpose. Do it, he says, what? So you can pray. Now, that's odd. That's odd. Be alert and of sober mind so you can pray. Before I get to you why that's so odd, let me just say, the word pray here is in the plural, it's prayers. So you can do your prayers. In other words, have an effective prayer time. It's not just talking about, you know, lofting a prayer here and there. He's talking about just a time with God. He said, well, you gotta be alert and sober so that you can maintain an effective prayer life. Now, normally you would think this. I, would, I looked at this and I go, they got, this, this, like, this seems reversed to me. Normally you think it the other way around. Pray so you can be alert and sober. Right? But it doesn't say that, does it? Now, that's true, no doubt, but here it's written the other way. Here it's be alert and sober-minded. Why? So you will be, can I add a word in here? Be motivated. See more deeply why you need to pray. See, because if you're not alert, if you're not sober-minded, you don't see reality. So you're not, you're not that needy. You don't really need that much. 
There's no need to really go to God. You don't feel that. You don't feel the need. You don't see it. You don't see how precarious your spiritual position is. You don't see how strong your enemy is. You don't see how strong sin is. You're kind of oblivious to that. So there's really no reason to pray. It's like, you know, um, I'm, in, I'm in basic infantry training instead of out in the trenches in the middle of the war. Out in the trenches, I'm going to think a little bit differently than I am in my barracks in training time, aren't I? I'm out there, I'm going to think a little bit differently. It's going to, everything, why? Because every, I see everything's different now. So, the reality is, is if we see things as they really are, if we're sober, if we're clear-minded, it's, it's going to prompt us to pray. We're not just going to go about our life it's, it's, as if all that's real is what we can see with our eyes. Peter says, if that's the case, you better sober up right now. You need to get some spiritual coffee. Sober up right now. If you do, you'll, you'll sense this desire to pray because you see why. Gosh, I need to pray. Let me give you an example of that. Every one of you have experienced this. Every one of us. Maybe multiple times, too. Have you ever been in one of those trials where you're going through something and, okay, all right, all right, and then it just keeps getting worse and worse or building in some way, and then you get to that place and you realize, I'm helpless. I cannot change this. I, I, God, I need you. Now, let me tell you something. Right there, that's the most reality you've ever been in, right there. And that's not just in the middle of a trial. That's life. It's just that the trial pulled the blinders away so you could see the level of your need. And maybe thank God for that in a way. Because otherwise it was kind of going on oblivious instead of sober-minded, instead of clear-minded. So don't be unaware, he's saying. Don't be oblivious. Don't be foggy. Be alert, clear-minded, sober-minded so you can effectively pray. The, the end is near. And then he says this. Here's the next thing. Above all, talking about living for God and finishing well, what we can do for one another to enable that in our community of faith. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply, number two. Now, if you've been rolling along with me in this letter, you'll recognize or you'll think, yeah, Peter's been talking a lot about love in this letter. He does. 122, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. 217, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. 38, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Over and over, we're seeing this. Now, Christian love, as you know, can be explained in a variety of ways and applied to a variety of circumstances. But Peter does something really uniquely here in his application. He chooses one of those circumstances where love is needed in particular. He says, when we love one another, we cover over a multitude of sins. Now, that's not to say, let me just say, that's not to say we don't take sin seriously. And let me say, this is not covering up. It's covering over. It's two different things. You will see that. You will see that. Peter spent a great deal of time throughout this entire, entire letter urging us to holiness, urging us to righteousness. And if we ignore sin, we lose our own integrity and we also lose our witness in the world. Peter is not saying ignore or minimize sin. So what does it mean then when he says cover over? Not cover up, cover over. Well, there's two passages that can help us with that. One's over in James 5, the other one is in Proverbs 10. And I think both James and Peter got this out of Proverbs 10, right? Proverbs 10 says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Now, James takes that and he applies it to individual believers. Peter takes it and he applies it to the, the, the body of believers together, a local church. So James says this, let me read it to you, James 5, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring him back, bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner, this is a sinning believer, because he's talking to brothers and sisters, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So in this case, 
What James is saying is love intervenes, and that intervention prevents sin from becoming more destructive in that person's life. See, love prevents sin from becoming more destructive, wreaking more havoc in that person's life. Now, Peter applies that not to the individual, but to the whole body. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. So in this case, love is the forbearance that prevents sin from becoming more destructive within the believing community. Do you see that? Love each other. This is talking about the body. See, anytime you hear or read one another in the Bible, it's talking about those people you gather with, that you worship with, that you have contact with, that are fellow Christians, that you hear the word together with, or that you meet. It's talking about a body of Christ. One another isn't referring to everyone else in the world that is a believer. A lot of times people say that, say, well, all those one another verses love one another. I mean, we're just supposed to love the whole body of Christ, right? Oh, okay, so how about show hospitality to one another? Can you do that for someone in China? Pretty tough, isn't it, to have them over to your house? They're in China, right? So the one another, show hospitality, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one, those are all encouragements for the body of believers that we are meeting with, that we're gathering with, that we love, that we're committed to. So Peter says, love each other. This is too deeply because what? Love covers a multitude of sin. Why? Because love prevents sin from, become, now, from becoming more destructive in the community of faith. Now, how does it do that? Practically, love that covers a multitude of sins means we don't go around looking for the faults of others. We don't go around rehearsing the past sins of others. Instead, we, we're not oblivious we're not oblivious, but we choose to go around seeking to think the best about others, 1 Corinthians 13. We go around being ever ready to forgive one another, to overlook things, to not be self-righteous or, or, or judgmental, but encouraging people to the Lord, encouraging people to follow the Lord. We think the best about them. We see what God can do in them. The love that covers sins is a love that keeps one from reacting to wrong in a way that destroys community and instead responding to wrongs in a way that protects unity. You know what that means? Love is not that warm, fuzzy feeling, but rather an action, an action, a decisive action of treating others in the Christian community in such a way that it promotes unity and helps overcome the behaviors that can destroy relationships. And that implies that living in, in the depth of community that God calls us to live in is not very easy. That's why people are really attracted to, you know, box churches where you're a consumer and you can remain isolated and nobody needs to know you and you nobody else. It's just an spiritual exchange, because why? Well, if you actually start really knowing people and becoming cemented in a family, you, you, you have to deal with things. You have to actually love. So if you never enter into enough relationship or a depth, you never really have to love sacrificially. Love is just a concept at that point. It's never really something that, you know, really calls on you. Shallow community is easy because it only requires shallow love. Deep community is difficult because it requires what? Us to love one another. Peter says it twice in this, book, in this letter. Deeply. Love one another deeply. Which must, to me, implies there's also a shallow love and then there's a deep love. Right? You know, and it's that kind of deeply loving one another from the heart that produces the, 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 the community that can protect us from sin, that can protect us from Satan, that can, you know, to live in this world that's hostile towards biblical faith. It's only the, that kind of community that can keep us from falling back or falling away or diluting or watering down the faith. And you make that community. I, there are a lot of people always going, well, I just need to find community. Stop that. You make community. Scripture never says go look for community. Never. It says you make it. 
You make community by investing yourself by faith in a group of people. And the more people do that by faith, the greater the level of that community, the more people are protected, the more accountability is, the more people really live for God because they got someone saying, don't go down that path. I love you, don't do that. Does that make sense? You make community. Community is what you make it. You say, uh, okay, I get it. I agree with you, 100%, but it's just not worth it. I think I'm just going to isolate myself and do my own thing. You know something? That's not clear-minded. That's inebriated. You're spiritually drunk. That's not thinking right. If, if you do that, you're going to be like a, a lone sheep in wolf country. Right? You're going to be like a disconnected body part floating around in the universe. Unable to function. Why? Because you need the rest of the body function. You need community function. You need your brothers and sisters. And that requires what? Loving one another deeply from the heart. And that's why Peter says here, above all, this is the most important thing right here, love one another deeply. And that love not only is shown in forbearance within the community, a love that covers, but it's also shown in a love that welcomes, a hospitality granted to others. And that's the third thing Peter says here, offer hospitality one to another, and notice this last part, without grumbling. I'll get to that in a minute, but anyway, Peter was writing, of course, to um, believers living in Central Asia, modern Turkey. There was a number of churches. These churches were relatively small. And since there were, and these believers like us, you know, occasionally had a, a reason to travel. Don't think the ancients didn't travel just because they were living in the ancient world. They did. And when they did, they needed places to stay. In the ancient world, there were very few hotels or inns, which Jesus found no place in, <laughs> right? There were inns, but there were very few, and they were usually pretty dark places. Let's just leave it at that. And Christians, too, were ostracized. They, weren't, they were rejected by culture, so they, they, didn't, they, they couldn't make or access, you know, public places for these things. And so the custom of staying in other believers' home was quite common. In fact, Peter writes this letter. It's going to be delivered by somebody. This somebody, probably on his way to Asia Minor, stayed in a few Christian homes along the way. In fact, they even had rules for it. It's quite interesting because, you know, like anything else, it can be taken advantage of. And those people were no different than people today. That's another thing. We think we're superior to the ancients. Not so. Um, you know, they had these rules, historic, you can find the historical documents on that, but one of them was like this, I was kind of laughing at it the other day, you know, it, it, the traveling teachers would use this too, to go from church to church, or, or prophets would, and there was, this, there, there was this one rule that said, if a prophet stays more than two days with you, he is a false prophet, reject him. <laughs> now, the early church put the screws down on stuff like that, right? They really did. So that's why, that, that's the whole thing behind hospitality here. But with that in mind, there is nothing in this passage that suggests this kind of hospitality is what Peter's talking about because the command is to offer hospitality not to this person traveling in from out of town, but to who? Offer hospitality to one another, each other. And so Peter says, open up your homes for one another, to one another. This, of course, became very helpful is that the church grew and needed meeting places and were afforded those places within public. And so these, there were several churches that were meeting in, in homes. But Peter is still talking about something here more fundamental, more organic than simply opening up your home for a church or a small group. And there's two reasons why. First thing, here's Christian hospitality. It's not just a function of necessity. It's not just an obligation to be carried out. It's a reflection of the gospel. When you open up your home, it is a picture of God opening up his home to you through Jesus Christ. It's a reflection of the gospel. It's a practice of making room for others like God made room for us at his table. And one day we'll celebrate that at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a table that will be. So we show hospitality the gospel when we welcome people, not just into our homes, but into our lives. Like, are you a welcoming person or are you like a, a, a 
One time a person said that to me years ago. He says, you're, you're like this. It was a guy from South America that I was friends with. He says, you're like a wall sometimes. And I realized he was kind of right. Some people are that way, and then other people are what? They're just wide open doors, right? They're just, you know, well, for all the wide open doors, bless you. The rest of us really have to work at this thing, right? We do. Because there's kind of a hospitable spirit that we need to have towards one another, towards being together. But secondly, hospitality is a demonstration of stewardship. It says, my home, everything in it is not my own. It belongs to God. And I'm, I'm simply the steward over it. My time is not my own. It's God's. And I'm simply a steward over it. In fact, I'll go one further. My life is not my own. 1 Corinthians 6. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. My life is not my own. I'm a steward over it. That means I manage it, but I don't direct it. He directs it, right? If it belongs to God, I'm just a steward over it. Well, since God is the creator, and since he is the owner and the provider of all that is, my time, my life, my home, and possessions are his, not mine. And if, see, if they're mine, I'm free to use them any way I want. If they're his, then I need to be a steward. And that changes the way you look at everything in your life. Everything. Let me illustrate that with a little picture. There's a phrase that we borrowed from the English um, that says, a man's home is his. So you know it, right? So there's a bit of truth in that, isn't there? Every night we drive up to our castle and retreat into it and close the drawbridge. That's the, that's the garage door button. <laughs> right? And every morning we open the gate again and exit our castle. So in the light of that little picture there, hospitality is simply the joyful willingness to lower the drawbridge a little more. Amen? Again, to some people it comes very easy. To most of us, we have to work at it. But regardless, Peter says that should be a part of living a life of love. Love doesn't end with the forbearance that covers sin or even the hospitality that opens up a home. It goes further than that. And Jesus demonstrated it in John 13 when he took the pitcher of water, the basin, and the towel, and he went and he washed the disciples' feet. He served them. Love not only covers sin, love not only opens up and is hospitable, gives of your heart, gives of your house, gives of your time, but love also kneels down and serves your brother and sister. And this service, just like the love, just like the hospitality, is absolutely essential, it's critical, to give and receive in order to really live for God and to finish strong. Look at point four. Serve one another with the gifts of grace you've, been, you've received. Verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, five points. Every believer, say every Every believer is gifted by God to serve. Do you see the beginning of that? Each of you, not a portion of you, not a percentage of you. It says, right, each of you. So every believer. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not in some way been enabled, gifted by God to, to serve others. Everyone is in some way gifted to serve. Furthermore, everyone should use whatever gift they've received to serve. Notice he says, use whatever gift. He doesn't say, if you'd like to, you may. If not, you can opt out. It's actually a command in the Greek. Use whatever gift. Why? It's not yours. Who said you could do with that with what the gift God gave you to? Who are you to do that? Do you see? Yeah. It's not up to us whether we use a gift. You know, it's not like I just go, you know, I'm tired of doing this. I'm just going to go get a sales job. It, don't, it doesn't work that way. Now, I could go do that, but I'm going to be increasingly more and more unhappy in my life. Open myself up to deception. And I know a lot of guys 
I mean, not a ton. Friends that were pastors, people I was associated with, they're bartending today. They got a call. Now, why? It goes back to that second thing. We talked about last week. Don't let those old patterns come back in. I mean, it's heartbreaking. They stopped using their gift. They thought they had an option. They were deceived. This is true for all of us. Using or employing our gifts is obedience. Not doing so is what? And what's disobedience? Sin. Nobody likes to say that word. Sin. I want, let me just say something. Jesus Christ died to forgive you and gift you. The same blood that was shed for your forgiveness was shed so you could be gifted. Prove it. Ephesians 4. When he ascended up on high, he gave gifts to his people. Gifts. Now, list specific ones there, the ministry gifts, but he gave gifts to, to, to his people, right? Ascension is preceded by the resurrection, the resurrection is preceded by his death on the cross. So he died, rose, ascended to give gifts. Jesus died to gift you. Jesus died for that. So whatever gift we receive, number two, we have to realize it doesn't belong to us. Oh, he has the gift of this. They have the gift of that. Stop that. Amen. Don't do that. Gifts don't, they're on loan. Be humble. They're on loan from God. And they're to be used for God's purposes. We're simply stewards, again, of God's serving grace. And we're called to be faithful in whatever spiritual gifts or talents or abilities that the Holy Spirit has helped us develop. We're stewards over those things. And we're to use them, this verse says. And sometimes that's, in fact, many times it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. And at other times, they can be very difficult. It's hard. It's hard to be faithful, to be a steward over what God has given to you. We need power. We need the Holy Spirit. We need clarity. So we'll pray. Regardless, we're called to use them. Otherwise, Matthew 25, there's no well done. Zero. You, well done, good and faithful servant. You took what I gave you, and you used it. We want to hear that well done. Thirdly, discovering your gift should not be your main thing. Don't worry about it. I'm here to tell you, don't worry about it. Uh, a few years ago, there was this big emphasis, you need to find your gift. Like everything stops until you need to find your gift, whatever it is God has gifted you with. And the emphasis was so much on finding your gift, it was almost to the exclusion of actually using or serving somebody. I'm going to find my gift. No, I can't wash feet. I need to find my gift. <laughs> Although there are, in the Bible, five unique gift lists, none of them are comprehensive. So you can't just add them all up and say, here's the gifts in the Bible. No, they're just examples. They're given kind of as, here's some gifts. Here's, here's what I mean by gifts. It's not a comprehensive list that you'll see any, anywhere in the Bible. And that's because Peter says here that, that God gives gifts of grace that are varied. Various gifts, he said. The Greek there means multifaceted, like there's so many. Each person is uniquely gifted. Yes, there are categories, but even in those categories, every person is, is different. Peter says... You know, it's not the list that's important. He doesn't give us a list. He doesn't tell us any gifts here, does he? He says use it. He doesn't tell us what they are, though. Why? Why? Because finding that out is not the main thing. It's serving. And in the context, listen, in the context of faithfully serving, not introspection, faithfully serving, you will in God's timing, begin to understand how God's wired you to serve. It'll become more apparent to you. Other people will notice things in you. But it shouldn't be your main pursuit. You know, the main pursuit is simply to serve. 
to follow Jesus' example. Fourthly, gifts are not for you, but others. Now, in our modern world, we view it so much differently. I think Peter would roll over in his grave. Seems the concern today is not so much how to serve others and bring glory to the Lord, but how to find self-fulfillment and identity through giftedness. I don't know, everything is flipped where it's about me. We live in a very narcissistic age. It's a massive contradiction. Again, in the context of John 13, gifts are for washing feet, not self-importance. For washing feet. They're not towels. They are gifts. Think of a gift as like it's a towel that comes from heaven that you drape over. It's not yours. You're just... You're stewarding this towel. You bend down. You wash when you need to. That's what it is. Towels are used for serving people in the trenches of their life. They're not sashes we wear in a parade. That's what gifts are. So the question is not, 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 not what, what's my gift, but where's the towel? Where's that basin? Give me some feet. Jesus, you know, remember, Jesus did not look very favorably on those sons of Zebedee when they were vying for positions of honor in his kingdom to be seen by Matt. He didn't didn't think too highly of that. He said, no, 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 no. The first will be last, and the last shall be. And he said, you want to be great in my kingdom? Stoop to serve. That's what's great in my eyes. Now, fifthly, although Peter mentions no giftless. He does give two categories. He says those who speak and those who serve. And those who serve are all things done for the Lord that don't involve speaking. If anyone speaks, he should do so as the one speaking the very words of God. Now, of course, this isn't talking about, you know, it's kind of a casual conversation about Scripture. What's in view here is preaching and teaching the Word of God, whether that's to children or adolescents or teenagers or adults, whether that's in a park, in a church, or in a prison. It's talking here about the proclamation of God's Word. And it is true, every Christian must handle the Word of God with reverence, no doubt, and seek the help of the Holy Spirit to make it known to others. Every Christian is called to do that. And yet there is also those who are gifted to teach to one degree or another. And Peter says, be careful with it. Be careful with that Word. Be careful with it. You, you have to minister it as you're proclaiming the very oracles or words of God. Be careful with it. And that level of care requires a great deal of grace. But the exact same grace, listen to me, the exact same grace is equally required for the second category here of serving which encompasses, again, anything that's not teaching and preaching, and the majority of all that is done in the name of the Lord. He says, if anyone serves, they should do so with what? The strength God provides. And I think most believers are tempted to undertake serving volunteerism in in their own strength. You know, they go, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, teaching and preaching requires, you know, a special grace. But everything else we do for the Lord is just a matter of rolling up our sleeves and getting the job done. Peter says, uh-uh-uh, no, no. He says, if God is to be glorified in our serving and in our ministry, no matter what it is, I don't care if it's changing a diaper, it must be done with the strength God provides. Now, do I need physical strength to do that? No, it's not talking about this. It's the strength that says, I'm doing this for you, Lord. I'm doing this for you. And the strength that says, I've been doing this for you for 10 years. The strength to keep on going. The strength that just says, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to do this because it's right, because you've called it to me. And one day when I look back, I'm going to be glad with how I live my life this way as your servant with a towel draped over my, my arm. It'll mean a lot in heaven. It may not mean a lot right now to some people. But to you, it means everything. I am never more like you, Lord, and when I got that towel draped over my arm. And since the same grace is needed for the speakers and the servers, the same grace, that means there's nothing in the body of Christ that's more important or less important or somebody's more needed or less needed. The Bible even says over in 1 Corinthians that the the less visible parts of the body 
should be even elevated more. There's nobody that's more important. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And for a body to function requires every part working, even though some are less visible, more visible, prominent, less prominent. You know, my nose is very prominent. But it's not as important as my heart. I could breathe with this thing cut off, but I'll never be able to breathe or live without this heart pumping. Right? But nobody sees that, right? Same in the body. Nobody sees all that stuff, but it's equally important. It's equally important. requires the same grace. It's just as important to God. And we're to use those gifts, whatever they are, those serving gifts. That's what most people have that gift of helps in them. We're all called to do that. So if I'm going to, let's wrap all this up. Last week and this week in one minute. Are you ready? Let's sew it up. Are you with me? It's like you're getting tired. I can feel it. Too many words, brother. Just too many words. I only got you once a week and not even that sometimes. So I always come loaded for bear. All right, let me, let me, let me wind it up. To faithfully live for God and to finish strong. You have to realize that along the way, there's going, to be, there's going to be a little suffering for Jesus. He suffered. You will too. You've got to be ready for that when it happens. And we're going to learn next week or the week after, that's an honor, not a dishonor. And likewise, you know what's going to happen along the way? Satan's going to try to distract you and try to prevent you from doing God's will. He's going to try to pull you back. But fight the good fight of faith. And in that struggle to be obedient, to honor the Lord. You have to remember, there's a day, there's a day, there's a day coming. It'll all be worth it. And because of that resolve to live the rest of your earthly life for the will of God, with the understanding that the end is near, stay sober-minded, clear-minded, so you can see how much you need to pray, how much you need God in your life, and commit yourself to love your fellow believers with a love that covers sin, that opens up your heart and home, and that uses the gifts God's given you to serve one another in love as stewards. So that, so that, God says, if you do all this, you'll glorify me. I'll be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's what the end of Peter says. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. I know it was a lot today working through all these things, but I don't think there's a person in this room that would say, I, I, wanna, I don't want to live for you. No, we're here because we want to live for you. And we want to finish strong. We don't want to fall away. And we don't want to water it down. We don't want to abandon the faith. And we don't want to dilute the faith. We want to live for you. We want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's our heart, Lord Jesus. And so you've laid out here through the Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Peter, some things that can help us live that way. Help us to digest them. Help us to think again about these today and to discuss them when we meet in our small groups this week. So they can become actually part of our life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.